You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. So uh, this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Matt Ross, the Assistant Director of Conservation at the QDMA. Uh, If you guys are listening and you listened last week, um, this is going to be a consecutive podcast episode, kind of a part two of what we were talking about last time. Um, Matt, maybe we can just open up since the QDMA stewardship program is something that's uh, kind of on your mind and relevant. Can you maybe give the listener a little context into into what that is and what you guys have going on with it? Oh uh, yeah, that'd be awesome, Christian. Um, and appreciate the opportunity to to be on again and also you know talk about some of our programs like that. Um, we have a we have a, a program where you can learn to manage a property, whether you own it or lease it or rent it or have permission on it or whatever you know, some where you could go and make the property better. Um, it really stemmed from membership uh, demand. Um, you know, QDMA has been around for over 30 years, but uh, we, we've been known as one of the elements that we've been known of as is to teach people how to manage properties. But we don't have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of biologists on staff or something like that, even though we have tens of thousands of members. You would imagine one of the more common questions we get uh, and it's pretty frequent as, you know, teach me how to, or, you know, what should I do here? How can I make my property better? Those kinds of things. So back in the mid 2000s, we developed a, a curriculum and initially it was all in person where you had to attend, but we've moved it into an online format for part of it, part of it's in person. But in essence, we, we take whoever's interested in doing it um, and going through the program, um, take them through the steps of basically managing their own property. So you can hire somebody to come and give you that advice. And actually, I did that before I worked for QDMA uh, full time. I used to be a property consultant and there's mm-hmm. lots of good consultants out there and they're worth their weight. Uh, I, I would say that by and large. But, you know, a lot of us have a DIY personality. We want to learn how to do it ourselves. Um, so that's what the classes are. Um, and like I said, you there's an online format. Um, we have a fully comprehensive curriculum called Deer Steward 1 and 2. Um, that's the Deer Steward program. Uh, level 1's online. Level 2's in person. We move the Level 2 per, uh, course around the country every year and do it in different locations and have a cap to that. Um, we also have what we call Deer Steward modules where we pick one particular topic and we drill really deep down on that. That has an online and an in-person component as well. Um you know, for example, if you're really interested in uh, trail cameras or really interested in habitat or predators, we have modules on all those kinds of things, um, uh, and we we offer them pretty frequently. So, uh, in essence, the deer steward program is to teach you about how to manage deer, um, and they vary from inexpensive options, you know, like the 1995 version uh, mm-hmm. for our online modules, up to you come hang out with us for four days. Uh, in a level two class and, uh, you know, it costs more money because of that. You know, we feed you over a couple of days, but, you know, all elements for anybody at whatever resource level uh, people are interested in. 
and uh, super popular. Um, uh, we put thousands and thousands of people through it. Um, I will say the timing of this podcast is great. Our registration for the online classes are always open. Um, you could uh, register for them at any point, but we are instituting the first price increase ever. Um, we've been doing the online courses since 2011, and we've been doing the in-person classes since 2007. And uh, we've never increased the prices, but we're going to. And if you're listening to this and you want to take the online Dear Steward class, um, if you do it between now and March 1, you will uh, save money because that March 1st is when the price increase uh, happens. So I've been trying to promote, and QDMA will be promoting that so that as many people can save as possible before we, we do institute a price increase on that. And then the level two classes, registration for those open February 3rd, Monday, February 3rd. So you can't register for them yet, but if you register between February and March 1, again, you can save money. We have an early bird discount. So anybody that's interested in these courses can go to QDMA's website, which is just QDMA.com, and then look under the conserve menu. That's the department I work in. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a Dear Steward link, and you can see all, all the different options there and price structures and my contact information is there if anybody has any questions about you know, what fits them for their needs or differences on uh, registration uh, costs and things like that. You can touch base with me through that. That sounds like an awesome program. But it, I, one thing that I'm wondering, um, do you guys have any curriculum in there? Um, and I'm sure you do talking about how to, how to age or how to go for an older age class or a more mature deer, because the way I'm thinking about this is this would be really awesome if you are hesitant to get a lease with someone or you need more people on your lease and you want to make sure that you're all on the same page. Yeah. Um, because People have different definitions of what is a what is a quality deer. So, yeah. how would you could you use this as a piece of curriculum for educating maybe people that you're hesitant to hunt with because of that? Uh, absolutely, um, we have that type of information um, infused throughout all of the programs. Like, for example, one of the online modules it is aging deer. That 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 is the topic, and that's one of the 1995 versions. Um, but we also teach in Deer Steward one online. There's a whole video the the level one online class um, is 17 hours of video. It's it's YouTube mm-hmm. style, but they vary from 30 minutes to a little over an hour. And there's a whole hour on managing bucks, and a significant section of that one video is dedicated to aging aging deer on the hoof. And then uh, in the level two class. Uh, we actually teach people how to age deer, not only on the hoof, but by, by jawbone. We teach them once you get a deer to ground truth it and say, okay, I thought that deer was three or four or whatever. Um, how do I know if that's true? We teach you actually how to do that by tooth replacement and wear, which is a technique that biologists use. So it's infused throughout all of the deer steward programs. Um, I would say though, Christian, if anybody's really interested in, you know, if you're leasing or you have a friend or, you know, family member you hunt with and you want to kind of get them on the train of QDM, one of the best ways you can buy a class for them or, or take the class with them. Um, but just sign them up for QDMA because our magazine that you get has a section in it. And it's probably the most popular section of the magazine is called Age This, where people send in trail camera images. And we have a panel of I'm one of them of five 
people, five biologists from around the country, different corners of the country, and we all guesstimate the age on that deer and explain why we think it's the age. And we don't know what each other is voting, but when the magazine comes out, it says, here's the panel five and here's what they aged it at. And you can see, you know, I'm, I'm out to dry sometimes, I, I guess an age and I might be off a year compared to the rest of the folks, but I, you know, that, that's, that's the most popular element in the magazine. Um, we also have a free newsletter that you can sign up for every Thursday morning it comes out. It's an email newsletter, um, like many organizations have. So it shows up in your inbox Thursday mornings, and that has an age this component where you can, you know, vote and click the guess of the age. And then next week, it shows the previous week's photo with what I don't know several thousand people vote for it, five six thousand people on average I think a week, and you can see what the crowd says. And then we also have a biologist take on that. So every week you can see the previous week's vote and then vote again for a new one. And that's very popular too. So, um, you know, just getting somebody engaged in QDMA, uh, I, I mean, maybe not the best salesman of a Dear Stewart class. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I've gotten a lot of people to take it, but at the same time, you don't have to take a class to learn that stuff. We have free information on our website and our newsletter. And for, you know, 35 bucks a year, you become a member and you give back to something, especially if you're a passionate deer hunter feel like every deer hunter should want to be a member just because that's how I became a member. We talked about that in the first episode. I joined because I'm a passionate deer hunter and I was like, who's this group? I want to be a member of QDMA because I want to give back to something I'm really passionate about, you know, so join and you can, you can learn along the way. So give a gift membership. That might be a good, a great way to do it as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my dad's birthday is I think in seven days and so just growing up, I saw, I saw my dad shooting a lot of, uh, big deer, right. Um, a lot of really nice deer. I didn't being young. I have no, I absolutely no idea how old those deer were thinking yeah. back on it. But now of, of recent years, you know, we've kind of had a few properties that we can hunt together and my brothers have kind of got on this train where I see a lot of really nice, you know, and, I, and I've done it myself. I've, I've shot a really nice three-year-old before, but, um, I see more and more two and three year old deer being harvested off these places. And I'm, you know, like, I'm like, well, how old did you think that deer was? And they're yeah. like, oh, I have absolutely no idea. I'm four, five. I'm like, well, why would you think that? Like, I don't yeah. know, pretty nice horns. And I'm like, yeah. well, let, let's go back and let's like, this is like a, an end to end place where you can show someone, you know, this is, this is how you age a deer. This is, this is the, the things that you're going to look for. Whereas, yeah. you know, instead of like looking at pictures together, like, what do you think? Five. No, you know, and, and this, you guys actually have actual curriculum around this. And like, this just sound, sounds like a one-stop shop of like educating people. Cause it, it can be really frustrating, right? When you're, you're hunting those deer and trying to manage them and other people on your same property or not. So this definitely sounds like something that I'm going to be picking up for some, some of my, some of my friends and family. Yeah. Awesome. And I, and exactly right. And I, I would also tell the listener that that gauge um not only of like the threshold of where you feel comfortable that obviously varies by property by region and obviously by the hunter you know based on experience and what they want um but that ground truthing element of seeing what a deer would age by looking at its teeth after you kill it you need to kill deer you need to like break some eggs to make scrambled eggs obviously you need to kill some deer but the best thing to do is pull jaw bones off of every deer and after a couple seasons of doing that, 
you really get to feel what the deer living on the place that you're hunting, what their average antler size is by age class based on what the habitat looks right there. Uh, and, and that time, you know, and that time stamp, one of the best things about QDM is you can improve that by improving the habitat. And I know we talked about that in episode one as well, but that's where you can start to see a shift. And that I tend, I tend to use the word deer nerd. I, I, I fancy myself as kind of a deer <laughs> nerd cause I like collecting data and it's not the sexiest thing about deer management, but yeah. I, I have learned from firsthand experience from managing other properties from managing the farms that I hunt on um, and also just through work and and consulting and all kinds of stuff and educating folks through the last 15 years is that that varies by property and the best thing you could do is just create a little rolodex of what the deer look like where you live and if you're not satisfied with that improve the habitat and watch it change so we put one of the staunchest rules that we have on uh, the cooperative that I hunt on um, is you have to turn in a jawbone. You know, if you shoot a deer that's too small, some people we really, you know, encourage against this, you know, put fines on it. We don't like, you know, doing that um, mm-hmm. because really it, it, it's not going to solve an issue by doing the, the fine structure. But what we do in, in replace of that is we have a funny, it's a, there's actually a blog on QDMA's website about this as well. Um, in our check station, we have a couple of toilet seats uh, screwed to the wall and your seat goes in your picture goes in the toilet seat for a season. If you shoot a deer that's below what we, what we think so you, <laughs> you, you, uh, literally and figuratively go in the, the shitter, you know, that, you put your pictures in there. So it's more of a peer pressure thing, but sure. I, I, I will get very serious with any hunter and you are not going to be invited back if you don't bring in me a jawbone because the jawbone is the key to everything. The jawbone yeah. tells the story of how old that deer is. And after years of collecting it, I can tell you what the average antler uh, score is for different age classes. And I can also tell you as we reduce deer density, because in the early years of our, our co-op, we had way too many deer and we shot a lot of deer and reduced deer density so that there was more food for every mouth out there. And then we also implemented as we talked about in the first episode, a really comprehensive full-scale forestry program. And we have food plots out there and everything. So we elevated the amount of food that's out there now. And the average three and four-year-old are much bigger now than they were in the first couple of years. Um, It's just, that's how it works. It's not rocket science. It's pretty easy. It's just managing people that makes it a little bit more difficult, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. Sure. Something that I've noticed while we're on the the top topic of, of buck aging is like, I was I was reading a post by a, a the big game biologist uh, that runs all of Oklahoma, and he was like, you know, when you're aging a deer, uh, you do need to take the jawbone out. And he's like, but one thing you need to realize is that go look at high schoolers. Some of them some of them weigh 300 pounds. Some of them weigh 180 pounds and they're the same age, right? Yeah. And uh, he was he was talking about narrowing down these characteristics of what an older deer looks like. So for instance, I shot a five and a half year old deer this year. Um, what weighed like 160 pounds gutted. Yeah. And, and my buddy shot a five and a half year old deer could have been six and a half. Um, he didn't actually age that one, but it was over 200 pounds. Right. Yeah. So not a, not a lot of, I mean, these came off the same, literally shot out of the same stand. So those deer look drastically different, right? But both mature deer, and then my uh, my uncle was on a, a, a draw out hunt in southeast Oklahoma, 
they shot a nine and a half year old deer and, and it weighed, it weighed 105 pounds gutted and it was 165 inch deer. Wow. So that, that deer probably looked 200 inches coming to the woods, but just, just going to say, uh, you can't just judge off of antler size, right? Because I shot a deer two years ago that my uncle said, I think this is a two year old deer. And I was like, well, I think it's a five year old deer. And we pulled the jaw and it was four and a half. And I was like, all yeah. right, pretty, pretty close, you know, broken up seven point. This thing was probably like 70 inches. Yeah. So, uh, just, that just goes to show, can you give any more color to like buck aging? What are the things that you're looking at for a buck that you consistently yep. can go off of to oh, that's age? That's great. Uh, and a great example that high I think you're talking about Dallas Barber, the biologist in that's Oklahoma. Right. Yep. Um, that, that example that he used about, uh, you know, high schoolers. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm five, eight, my brother's six, one, you know, that we, we, we're from the same family. We were raised on the same roof, but we're, we're different sizes. That's a great example. So the things that I look for to, you know, to answer your question about bucks and weight and antlers are going to have these distribution. It's, uh, where it's a bell shaped curve. You have a lot of deer that are on average and you have some that are on extremes where they might be really light, like that 105 pound deer and some that are really heavy, but most are going to be average. And those, those are good to build. Um, when looking at a deer that's live and trying to determine in a picture or while you're hunting, how old it is there, we look at body shape or conformation, basically, um, the relationship of different dimensions of the body, uh, in comparison to, um, other parts. And there's some keys that you need to, to look for and always try to apply this technique for. Um, it's not an exact science, which is why we have that panel in the magazine. And sometimes we disagree, um, because it's very subjective based on, you know, just looking at a deer, which is why that jawbone is so important. And which is why we also promote the trophy is the jawbone, you know, antler dimensions are great. And I'm all for big antlers too, as much every hunter is. But if you shoot a deer and you pull a jawbone out and you see it's nine and a half or five and a half or whatever, I mean, think about how much pleasure that that brings you. Even if the score score was really low, be like, I killed a five year old buck. I mean, that 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 elevates the the trophy by a lot. So the things that I look for. So going through the different um, age classes are well. Here, let me say some ground rules first. This technique is always done in the fall. And the reason it's always supposed to be done in the fall is that is when the deer is going to be full of the most testosterone and the most changes in its body for like the look of a fall deer are going to be applied. In the summer, deer are not going to have as much of testosterone in their body. They're not going to look like the way I'm describing it. So this is a like basically peak rut is when you're using this technique and when it's the most sound. Um, we get lots of questions of and pictures of deer that are like middle of summer and I can guess, but I think there's a lot more flack slack there in terms of the guess. So fall time is important. And then the second thing is having a broad, the image or view of the deer should always be broadside head up. Um, if the deer is not broadside quartering to quartering away, facing away or something like that, um, you're not going to look at the, the differences in the shape of the deer as easily because there's going to be contortion and twists in the body. And then also head up because if the deer's running or neck stretched out, again, same thing. So you want the deer to be stationary, hopefully, standing, head up, broadside in the fall. And this is these are the, the uh, elements that we look for. 
the probably biggest thing that there, there's two th- main things that I look for is the shape of the body in relation to the shape and then also the relationship of the depth of the body to how long the legs are. That's one. And then the other thing is the depth of the neck and where it connects to the chest and the brisket, like where the front of the, the deer is. So let me talk about the first thing is the shape of the body. So as a deer ages, they will increase in weight. doesn't matter where they start from, but their, their weight is going to go up as long as all things are you know equal. You know, you don't have a really poor nutrition year for some reason, or the deer is unhealthy or disease or it gets injured. You know, if, if things, all things being equal, if the deer is just growing like a normal rate, its body's going to get heavier. And as it gets heavier, the, the, basically the stomach and chest and waist start dropping down and they also change shape. So a yearling buck, that's one year old buck is going to look generally rectangular in shape, like a long rectangle might be a little bit compact, more almost square, but like a long uh, rectangular body. You're going to hear this again at age class four, like a rectangular shape. But the difference is the relationship of that rectangle to how long the legs look. The legs are going to look really long on a yearling, obviously, because the body hasn't filled out. So the legs look really long and you have this skinny rectangular rectangle. Um, The back legs are also going to be a little bit longer than the front legs. Deer are actually still growing in skeleton until they're two years old. And the back legs tend to for some reason, look longer on yearlings. So that rectangle is going to be like kicked up a little bit going towards the back. So it has what we call a jacked up appearance. So almost think about a rectangle, but it's tilted, tilted with the higher end towards the the back end of the deer. Yeah. I call that chopper style. Yeah. Yeah. So it's rectangle shaped, long legs in relation to that ring rectangle. And then, uh, um, jacked up at two years old, the, back end of the deer the the hindquarters and anything fill out so the deer actually goes from a rectangular shape to basically a tapered um whatever shape that would be where the front end is still skinny but the back end uh has a much broader broader look to it so it's now like almost a triangle not quite but um it has a much more girth on the back end still has that jacked up appearance but it's no longer a rectangle shape uh, and the legs still look long. At three years old, it reverses from when it was two. And now the chest is filled out so much that it looks like the front is heavy and the back is light, almost like a, a one of my colleagues and founder of QDMA, Joe Hamilton, calls it a, a buffalo kind of shape, you know, where the buffalo has that big head and front heavy chest, but they got that tiny waist. So at three years old, a buck has that really front heavy neck shoulder area but now the waist is really tight almost you know really broad shoulders like a linebacker but tight waist so they're lean and on the end they're really fast and the hind end is really really short and at this point their legs are starting to look they're not shorter but the body's filling out to the point where the legs are starting to look a little bit more normal they're not like gangly looking mm-hmm. at four years old it goes back to being a rectangle the body shape but now the waist has dropped the chest is heavy and legs finally look like they are the right length for the body of the deer 
So it was a rectangle at a yearling, but now it's a rectangle. And there's a clear difference between a, a one and a four-year-old deer. So rectangular shape, legs look the right length. And then after that, at five and plus, basically the body is still a rectangle, but the legs look short because now the stomach has dropped down and we see things like a pot belly show up. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally there's a belly hanging down below the chest line at five, six or seven or older. And because of that, as the deer gets even older, the back line. So what was a straight line where the spine was, they are like basically now sagging their back line actually sags. And at advanced ages, even seven and plus, you'll see the hip bones sticking out, shoulder bones sticking out. So it's no longer a taut straight line going across. So the, that's basically the first thing. The, the shape of the body and its relationship to the legs are really, really important. Probably the most important thing. Almost as important. And one of the things I also look at and find very important is where the neck connects to the chest. And you will see in the fall when they're surging in testosterone, at least older age class bucks, the neck is obviously very swollen on older deer. And where that neck connects to the brisket at one years old, they have very little testosterone because they're basically a teenager. Um, so the neck is not really swollen, even in the middle of the rut, and it connects to the chest above the halfway point of, on, on the front of the chest. So it's very high connection point. At two, uh, it drops down to a little bit around halfway point. At three, it's about two-thirds of the way down. And then at four and older, um, the neck is going to basically be at the bottom of the brisket, almost like it flows into the brisket. So in my mind, I have the, the, the chest area segmented above half at one, half at two, about two-thirds to three-quarters at three, and all the way down at four and then older. And that, that, that varies based on the, how the head is being held. So I don't qualify that as much as the first thing that I look at, you know, body shape. But those are the things that I think anybody can do. Um, we have some really great examples. And actually, we have a poster, a laminated poster that you could put up in your hunting camp um, that has all of this out. And it's really well done and shown, uh, you know, with, with graphics. And we have articles on the website that are free and, uh, and other things. So this is one of the things today that, you know, QDMA has been talking about it for 30 years. Um, but it's amazing to me how popular it's become. You yeah. can find stuff online, um, you know, people talking about it. I think it's great. You know, there's obviously the self-proclaimed experts out there, but the more people talk about it, I think the better because what it's doing is bringing the idea of buck age into the mindset of new hunters of age is important, not antler size, but age is important. And how do I age that deer to, to determine that? And there are all kinds of awesome uh, resources now that, you know, we provide and others provide that talk about buck age. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really awesome description. When you were talking about where the neck kind of comes into the chest, would you classify that as starting to get maybe like a saggy brisket in the front? Cause there's that piece of like skin almost, it seems really tight and, you know, kind of like a leaned muscled up swimmer or something as the deer yeah, yeah. is really young. And then the more, in my experience, the older they get, the more you kind of see that become loose and saggy and it kind of sticks out from in between their two front quarters. So is that something that you, you look at too? Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't use that in the technique, uh, as much, but there is, 
the older a deer gets, the more uh, capable they are of putting a lot of fat on. And that's one spot that a lot of fat collects there and on the on the hind end. Obviously, if you skin a deer, which a lot many of us have, um, you see all that fat, especially in a really good year where you kill the deer early in the season, you know, thick fat around the hind quarters. They also have it on the chest. Um, so you get this big fatty deposit there with older deer. I don't use that necessarily in the technique. It's where the neck connects to the chest. There's a, mm-hmm. in some cases, especially younger deer, there's an obvious notch where basically the neck comes in at a horizontal angle. As the deer ages, it smooths out and it goes lower and lower and lower. So, um, you know, there are things like face shape. People talk about Roman noses, um, yep. et cetera, that don't really lend into it or the hair color. Uh, that doesn't lend into it. That's a genetic difference by deer. Um, but your point about being saggy, um, yeah, with older older age deer, you will see the skin kind of sagging in places. But it, it's it's a priority ranking, right, Christian? You know, like if mm-hmm. I saw a big saggy brisket on a deer, um, I would not automatically say looking at the preponderance of evidence of everything else on the deer must be old. Gotta sure. be old. Look at that. Look at that saggy brisket. I look at the things that matter the most. I, I mentioned two or that are the most important. There, if you watch the videos and read read our magazine, and you you know get that poster, you'll see there are a lot other elements. It'd be hard to do that in a podcast without visuals. But um, there's a lot more to it than that. But I never use one of the lower ranking priority things on my list as the thing to say. And there's a lot of people that I think actually go to that, <laughs> not, not the brisket, but they find something about a deer, like a gray face. Oh, it's gotta be old. Got, gotta be old, you know? And they don't look at the, you know, look at all the evidence, look at the whole picture. If you look yeah. at all the picture and there's lots of clues that it's an older deer, um, you can start to go towards, you know, an older deer. And I think the, the technique, which is really important is not to worry about the exact age class, but I when I teach this in person in like PowerPoints and stuff, I say, you know, look at, look around the room. We have the ability to tell a general age of the people in the room, even me, you know, you're looking, not looking at me right now, but you're looking at me on the stage. If I was there and say, you might not know my exact age, but if I asked you to, to, to pin me between, am I in my twenties? Am I in my thirties or am I in my forties or in my fifties? Where do you think I am? Everybody in the room will put put me in my 40s just because the way I look, um, mm-hmm. you know, I have gray hair, I have gray hair in my my goatee, um, but I, I hope I don't look like my 50s. And I don't think that people would guess that. But if you needed to guess exact my exact age, it'd be hard to do. The point there is you should do the same thing with bucks. And we try to lump them between three major categories, young, middle aged and mature. Young would be probably one and two year olds. Uh, Middle age would be three, maybe four-year-olds, and then mature would be five and older. And the reason I say five and older as the mature category is uh, deer actually have their largest set of antlers and will be at their larger body, largest body size. This is proven by research. I'm not making this up. Largest antlers come in between five and seven. And the multiple studies show that. And largest body size tend to peak between five and seven. So if you were going to say, all right, is that buck young, middle age, or mature, you should be able to tell, you might not be able to break a one and a two or maybe a three and a four, but hopefully you can say, oh yeah, yeah, that's a young deer. 
that's a middle-aged deer. I don't know if he's three or four, but he's kind of in that middle-aged category, um, or he's a mature deer. That's a lot easier to do. And from the management perspective of trying to make things better on your property, you don't have to know the real age, the actual age. If you want to see more mature deer, guess what? Don't shoot young or middle-aged deer. If you're happy shooting middle-aged deer, don't shoot young deer. And then pull a jawbone when those deer are dead and start ground truthing and creating a, you know, basically a, a threshold for yourself on your own property that says, hey, listen, I know that the average buck that's young or middle-aged looks like this and mature deer tend to look like this. I mean, our co-op, I mentioned it earlier, and uh, I think you wanted to talk about cooperatives. We're going in our 12th year, 11th or 12th year. I can't remember. Um, yeah, I think it's 11th year. Uh, we haven't shot that many five-year-olds, but that's not what we're protecting for. Um, you know, if I was going to say we only want to shoot f mature deer, I think we've killed maybe two five-year-olds in that. But you, do you know how many three and four-year-olds we've killed? A ton, because that's what we're aiming for. We protect one and two-year-olds, three and older are fair game. And I'm hunting with a bunch of guys that are very good at killing bucks. And uh, we kill three and four-year-olds every year. If we decided to let them go until five, which is close to insanity in the state of New York. But if we, if we did, we probably would shoot more five-year-olds, but that's not what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's where you temper your goals with your expectations. You know, what do you expect to shoot? It should be realistic and it should be based on real data from the properties you hunt. So that, that's where it all comes together. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think I read a I read an article or some some sort of study that um I I, I was like the bell curve I don't know if it was like seventy percent or or what it was that like most out of the Boone and Crockett deer that they've aged like almost not not almost all of them but most of them were in like had that Boone and Crockett rack at five and a half yeah and uh, I thought that was a really interesting piece of research yeah and and, and that's gonna vary obviously by. Uh by region or state but yeah i would imagine that out of the and it might even be higher than 70 percent. i think i do remember seeing a statistic like that but that is where they're going to have large antlers um it, it's the it's the case you have these super freaks that sometimes you know uh roll the dice and actually get genetically blessed by both the doe because of, don't forget you know half your gen genes come from your mom and half your genes come from your dad um, and I just mentioned I'm shorter than my brother and he got different genes, you know, to make him shorter than, than I, or I'm shorter than he is, but half of them come from the dough half from, And sometimes bucks roll the dice and they get this perfect combination where they have very large antlers at younger ages. But guess what? Those antlers are going to get bigger with time. Um, the largest antlered buck that we've killed off the co-op was in the one sixties. And he was only, I shouldn't say only, but he was four years old. He was probably in the high 140s. I have one of his sheds at three. Um, he was huge. Uh, but that that is such a rare deer for where we hunt. Um, most deer are scoring probably in the 120s at four years old. I mean, it's just that's that's. And honestly, everybody thinks there's some really cool research out of uh, different parts of the country. Everybody thinks of South Texas as like this amazing place to go hunt. And it is. It's really unique uh, place. But they just move so many deer in South Texas into older age classes that there's a higher just number of deer that are five than in other places. Cause it's really, 
um, large blocks of land, you know, 10, 20,000 acre ranches, highly managed. They're, they're not shooting deer generally in South Texas, unless they're older. Um, it's also pretty hard to hunt because of the way the terrain lays. It's flat. You get all of this crazy thorny stuff growing in the brush and people don't kind of walk around. Deer don't get bumped. You know, they get very accustomed to not being pressured. And there's just way more deer that are five and older in South Texas. But the average buck that's that's uh, five year old in South Texas scores way lower than you would think it does. Um, you know, if you killed every five year old, they're just not very big deer compared to other parts of the country that have more nutrition. It's just there's not a lot of um, five year olds in those other parts of the country. Um, sure. There's some anomalies out there, places that just pump out lots and lots and lots of bucks at different age classes that score Boone and Crockett. A lot of times, though, that comes down to land use, you know, how heavily it's hunted or protected, I guess. Um, regulations. Some states have very short gun seasons where, um, you know, a lot of hunters go out and they shoot a lot of deer, but uh, you can't call, kill them all in a five or seven day season. So some of them make it through to different ages and, you know, those, those kinds of things play into the role, too. So if you've been paying attention in the last four to five years, you've probably seen how hunting mapping software has really changed. A lot of brands, a lot of different companies popping up, um, dropping products out in the market. But, you know, hunting software has really changed the way that I have interacted with public land, shared points with friends, um, and mapped in between public and private lands. It's really changed my whole approach um, pre-hunt. Um, I use it to, to scout at home, um, and I really think it has helped me narrow down areas that I really want to um, attack when I show up to a per certain piece of land. And the company that I'm going to choose to use this year in terms of mapping software is HuntStand. Um, HuntStand has an awesome application that you can download on iOS, on iPhone, or Android. Um, you can go to the App Store. But if you want to get 10% off of a year-long subscription to HuntStand, you can go to HuntStand.com and use code ADVANTAGE at checkout. Once again, that's HuntStand.com. Use code ADVANTAGE at checkout. You can, guys can get a $24 map that will give you a map of all 50 states throughout the United States. It's a super deal, and with 10% off, it's just insane not to get it. So enjoy, and I hope you guys have a great year in the field. Right. So... As we're on the topic of deer age, um, I was reading one of your articles earlier about um, deer age on public land, the amount of uh, one-and-a-half-year-olds that are harvested off of public land versus private. I think you said 75% of one-and-a-half-year-olds make it on private and 30-something percent make it on public. And uh, so what are you? what's some advice for someone that is wanting to you know, harvest quality deer on public land? or And do you think it's it's you could change maybe how would you go about maybe changing collectively um a group of hunters to harvest older age class deer on public is that just through educational material conversations or how do you think we go about doing that so that's a, that's a great uh question and that study that you you're that i wrote about was out of delaware and it was came out a couple of years ago it's pretty recent um I'm guessing that is probably holds true across the country, um, but it's going to vary, obviously. Um, so, yeah, if you're hunting on public land, you're exposed. This, I guess that's the right word to, you know, using it and sharing it, which is great. I mean, those are all great things, but people that have different goals in mind. And uh, um, at least in the example of that research, 
uh, more people are shooting yearlings on on public land, at least in Delaware. Um, I think one of the best examples of how to um, get people in an area to get on board is through education. Um, there is, you know, some states mandate it with rules. Um, you know, they they lobby for or the state agency implements without, um, you know, getting asked to do it. And things like antler restrictions, either antler point restrictions or antler spread restrictions, where it actually regulates what people can shoot. In some places, there's 20 plus states out there that actually have some form of antler regulation in place. Um, in some places, it's statewide. In some places, it's only on WMAs or, or wildlife what's called a wildlife management area or game commission land or, you know, public public area. Um, and some places, it's only on private. So they vary. But QDMA's perspective on it is education is probably the best way. And with an antler regulation in place, um, if it is biologically necessary to do it, that's that is a good way to to get most hunters to comply, but it doesn't have to be. Um, actually, the two states that you and I are, you're in Oklahoma, right? Um, yep. The two states that you and I are sitting in, so I'm in New York and you're in Oklahoma, are probably the two examples currently right now that don't uh, have a statewide antler regulation in place where it's forced, um, where it's mandated, where it's regulated that you have to shoot a deer of a certain antler dimension but it's promoted through education. Um, New York, where I live, does have a about uh, probably a fifth of the state is in a antler regulation where it is actually mandated. But statewide, we have a state agency that through a long period of public involvement and, and stakeholder involvement and surveys and stuff, they found that most hunters wanted it, but they were seeing that the significant number of hunters um, still did not want to be regulated. So about three years ago, New York implemented, actually, it's pretty fashioned off of what Oklahoma has been doing for years, an educational campaign that basically promotes everywhere they touch hunters, video, e-newsletters, when you get your regulations guide, when you buy your hunting license on their website, everywhere, there's an educational campaign that says um, something like let them go, let them grow, but it's, it's not quite that that exact um, I, I can look it up if you're if you're interested. And I know Oklahoma's is or has been hunters in the know. Let young bucks grow. It's some similar to that. But what they basically do is through education and say, hey, if you want to improve things, it's your choice. You know, we're we're here to regulate, but you can decide this through the the, the act of pulling the trigger by not shooting young deer. And they promote it through education and have have been for at least three years in New York. And Oklahoma's been doing it for way over ten years. And I can tell you, we're about to release our national uh, whitetail report. We put QDMA puts it out every year. And every year we assess based on asking every state what the percent of yearling bucks were in the harvest the previous season. And you can see, I'm not going to tell you what the number was uh, because we're about to release it. So I want that to, to come out with a bang when it does. But since 1989, when QDMA was formed in 88, so we've been tracking this every year, it's gone down. It, 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 in 1989, it was 62% of the national harvest of bucks. We're talking about 3 million bucks killed in, in around that year. About 62% of them were yearlings. Mm. And through promotion from QDMA, 
and getting our membership, you know, skyrocketed in the nineties. We just got more and more people joining more and more people practicing more and more people promoting it. And we were talking about a few years, uh, minutes ago that dropped every year, went down, 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 down until recently. Now it's in the 30% thirties uh, in the thirties. That's where it's been. So now less than a third of bucks killed in the country. Still, it's about 3 million bucks. It's a little less than that now, but not much different. But it's half of what it used to be. So Oklahoma, are you familiar with that educational campaign? Uh, Hunters in the know, let young bucks grow. You can get bumper stickers. I mean, they promote it. Um, yeah, my buddy has, uh, he actually has a, uh, a QDMA shirt that he wears all the time. And it says, uh, let him, let him grow so he can, or let him go so he can grow. I see him wearing that shirt all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the state actually took it and did their own form of that campaign. You know, we don't have like a copyright or trademark on that slogan, but I don't remember what year it was. I could look it up, but Oklahoma started doing it because hunters were interested, but they didn't want to mandate it and say, you have to kill a buck of this size. So they did it through education and Oklahoma ranks among the top five every year in percent lowest percent of yearling bucks in the harvest. Very, very low in Oklahoma. New York's, for example, uh, was about 60 or 65 percent in the statewide harvest 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. three years ago, they started promoting it. And now it's in the low 40s, dropped 20 percent just by telling people, you know, through education. So to answer your question, uh, if there is a public area that you hunt on and you would like to see more young bucks uh, protected, you could do that through education. You could either do that through talking to your state agency and seeing if they would promote it to the hunters that hunt there, either at a kiosk or if it's regulated, like you have to get a permit to hunt that area. You know, it's a lottery. Every time you, you get somebody to apply, maybe they get mailed some education about it. It doesn't have to be mandated. You can educate it through the state agency. So I would I would try that route or uh, you could form a local QDMA branch in the community. So uh, we have hundreds of QDMA branches They're what we you know, we call them branches. They're like chapters of any like conservation organization. They they form for the sole reason to promote QDM quality deer management in their community. So if you had a QDMA branch or chapter in your town and they had a banquet and they did education, whether people hunted that attended that uh, those events that that branch held, whether they hunted on that public area or not, they would start hearing about it. And actually, a lot of our branches do like public land service where they will actually go and do habitat work on public land, plant food plots, donate seed, do work days, build kiosks. You know, you could get a branch to raise some funds, use that money that they raise because they keep a like almost a significant percent of the money they raise stays in their community, almost half. And so they use it for things in their community. They could do stuff to, to promote public land deer management right there in that town. Or a third alternative is to form a co-op. And there are close to 30 million acres in the country right now in QDM cooperatives. And this is where you get landowners that, that start managing together. And I know of some where they have a public private interface where sometimes there's a public land manager that says, okay, listen, I can't force people to shoot, uh, you know, not shoot younger deer, but I'll put your pamphlets out as people walk in and they might be part of the co-op that way. And, and, uh, 
we have we have lots of interactions with public land managers where co-ops are of interest. So that's another way that you can promote it. So the answer is education, Christian, as you said, but there's way, you know, how do you do that? Those are the ways that you do it. That's very interesting. So maybe while we're on the topic, uh, you could kind of give a little bit more context into what a co-op might look like um, with neighbors, with people on your own lease, or however that looks like, and how you go about starting one. So co-ops are um, a, basically, it's a cooperation between adjoining or nearby neighbors to practice deer management together. Um, They're more popular in some states than they are in others because they've been doing them longer. In some states, they're they're more popular because of need. Um, like, and I can come up with a couple examples. Probably in the nation, the two most popular places co-ops are are, are Texas, um, and that's because they have a really good formal program that the state agency, Texas Parks and Wildlife, promotes that you can get extra permits through it and all kinds of things. They have something like two or three million acres in co-ops just in Texas alone, um, and then Michigan, which is primarily a grassroots thing. Uh, Michigan has the average land holding in Texas is very different than it is Michigan. Michigan, you know, the average person probably owns 10, 20, 30, 40 acres, not hundreds or thousands. Um, And there's a lot of people in Michigan. There's a lot of deer hunters and there's a lot of deer killed. And historically there was a lot of young bucks being shot in Michigan. So it's our biggest membership state or one of, um, it varies. It's in the top three every year. We have, you know, five, six thousand members in the state of Michigan, a lot of branches. And there's also a lot of co-ops. Um, so that's by based on need. Um, but they can be as formal or as informal as you want them to be. Um, basically, you knock on your neighbor's door uh, or doors. I can c- kind of go through how you get one started here in a second. But you get you get people to, to say, hey, listen, let's do this together. It does not allow like in our co-op. I can't go hunt on the other guy's farm. It doesn't provide like open access. It's just before the season starts, we sit down and say, all right, what's our goals for the year? Um, you know, we agree on them. Everybody goes their own direction. They hunt their own land. Um, you know, sometimes there's communication mid season about how things are going. And then at the end of the season, everybody gets together. We compare notes, you know, bring jawbones together, compare weights, all those things say, all right, uh, you know, what do we need to fix for next year? So, they can be literally two landowners where you have it's it's a cooperation. That's what a co-op is. So you can have two neighbors working together. That's a co-op. Um, but I know of co-ops of much, much larger in size. There's some massive co-ops in the country. There's one in Western Maryland uh, that is like literally uh, it's got to be 30 or 40 or 50,000 acres and hundreds of landowners. Um you know, it, it can get as complicated as you want it to be, but basically it just means neighbors working together. Um, sometimes they're named, sometimes they're not. Uh, there's tons of assistance. QDMA actually employs people that actually that's their main job uh, is to help form co-ops. And we can chat a little bit more about that. Co-ops don't need to be contiguous. They don't need to be where you have every single block of land sealed up. It can be a checkerboard pattern. It obviously is better if you have everybody in, but it doesn't, you know, you might have some inholding where there's a couple landowners in the middle of your co-op and they don't want to participate. Well, guess what? They're going to benefit from it. And at some point they're probably going to come on board, but um, 
so it doesn't need to be contiguous. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of different things out there for co-ops. We have a, just, again, under the conserve menu on QDMA's website, if you scroll down a little bit lower than Dear Steward, there's a QDM cooperative uh, toolkit page. It's got videos, resources, uh, contact information to some of our specialists. So if you're interested in forming a co-op, you know, we, have, we have lots of resources. A digital brochure that you can print out and hand to your neighbors if you want them to, to come on board. Just say, hey, read this. I'm interested in forming something like this. What do you think? Um, but they're super impactful. Um, you know, Michigan, for example, currently, I just asked our co-op specialist there. We uh, we pay the salary of somebody that, that works in Michigan. They're not a QDMA employee. They actually work for a, a separate organization. But we pay part of the salary. The state agency does. Um, Pheasants Forever pays part of the salary because – a lot of co-ops out there are deer focused, but they don't have to be. There are pheasant co-ops and quail co-ops. There are habitat co-ops where you might have a bunch of neighbors get together and they want to form a cooperative just to improve the habitat in the general area. But anyway, this young woman that works, um, she's an MUCC employee in Michigan. That's Michigan United Conservation uh, Council. I asked her to give me the latest um acreage estimate at the end of 2019 for the state and they're like close to 350,000 acres in the state which is super noteworthy because the state manages less land in state game areas basically like open hunting public land than are now in co-ops and what's really unique about that is if an issue arises this person can literally contact that tens of thousands of hunters in a touch of a button just by emailing all the co-op leaders and saying, hey, um, the state agency needs to collect this data the upcoming year. Please start telling your hunters about it. I mean, it's just a very quick way to communicate with a lot of people. It's great. That's really awesome. No, I mean, these these sound like deeply impactful, and that's something that when I get some some land of my own or a long-term lease, something that I would definitely be interested in starting. Um, but in terms, one thing that we had touched on um, that I think we kind of skipped over just a little bit was this idea of antler restrictions. So like in Oklahoma, we don't have one. We don't have a minimum. Um, but for instance, like Texas does. Yeah. And Texas is a, thir it's like 13 inch wide minimum. And it's really interesting to me because the deer I shot last year was only 13 and a half inches wide. You know, it's over 140 inch deer, wow. but this deer awesome. was, yeah, only 13 and a half inches wide. Do you think that is a, a flawed measurement in terms of, or, or is it just a, uh, you know, kind of an overarching statement of this is, we're trying to get younger deer to, to survive into these, uh, middle age or mature age classes. But for me, um, in my experience, I've seen several or a lot of deer that are sub or less than 13 inches wide that would be considered a mature deer and yeah. how does it affect those hunters that that's that's the flaw in in mandating antler restriction or in mandating it through some kind of antler rec regulation now antler regulations when uh, we have a three-part test it, you know that qdma would say we support the antler regulation there they have to be biologically sound so they have to be actually based on real data off of the deer that you're trying to protect. So you need to know what the average antler score is per age class. Like we talked about earlier, the whole deer nerd, nerd thing, the state likely has it, but they would need to base it off that data Two, It's got to protect the majority of yearlings 
but but also let the majority of two and plus year old bucks be eligible for harvest because if you're protecting deer above the yearling age class um, it can complicate things and i can explain that biologically if you're interested and then it's also going to be supported by the majority of hunters that's the third thing if uh the majority of hunters uh don't support it the best antler regulation that's designed out there um still will fail because hunters don't want to do it and they just if they don't shoot the deer that you want them to then your whole program fails and then it also has to be tested regularly you know basically every couple of years see if it's working and if it's not you got to pull it um the big flaw in antler regulations like generally antler point restrictions are what are implemented first or will will uh be the easiest because hopefully every hunter can count points whether yeah. it's how many points on a side or total points and generally those are also designed around the habitat influence in an area. So like in Pennsylvania, um, the Eastern side of the state has more ag in it than the Western side of the state or, or vice versa. I can't remember, but, um, I think it's maybe vice versa, but part of the state, they have a four point rule on one side and the other part of the state, it's a three point rule. So that's based on what the deer can produce in those places. Mississippi started with an antler point restriction for three different generic areas of the state of Mississippi, where they have the right along the uh, Mississippi River, super rich soils, a lot of ag. They had a, a point restriction there that was different than the middle part of the state, which was different than down by the Gulf, which is really poor soils. So they had a point restriction for design for each of those three areas. Mississippi at one point then decided that it was over harvesting some of the larger point antler deer in some of those areas. So what would be known as, um, it's escaping me, um, high grading, sorry. High, like, you know, you can read or hear people talk about antler point restrictions, high grading. What it does is it's not changing, changing the genetic profile of the deer in that area. You can't change the genes of a deer, free ranging deer herd. But what it was doing was allowing people to shoot the most point antler deer in each of those areas based on allowing them to shoot a certain size. But it tended to be some some of them were younger deer that just had lots of points. So they moved to a spread, a combination approach of a spread, which is what you're talking Texas does, or beam length. So if a deer uh, matches a certain spread or has a certain beam length, it's eligible. Those are actually more biologically sound than point restrictions, a spread requirement like Texas has, or a beam length. Uh, but they're harder to regulate because it's subjective when a hunter sees a deer you're guesstimating the age, the spread of the deer instead of actually counting points. So it can be a little bit harder to regulate, which is why they're not used as often, but they're more biologically sound. Christian, the best thing to do, although again, harder to regulate at a state scale, would be aging bucks by their body, which is what we talked about a little while ago. You know, aging bucks on the hoof is the most accurate way to do it, but it's hard to regulate it through law and you know give somebody a ticket whether or not the deer was a certain age i mean it makes it very difficult to do um that's why education is the best route to go you know to go back to that is that if you educate hunters you know over time they were they're going to make personal choices that makes them happy but at the same time age classes will increase over time so the deer you shot 
was mature. You said he was five, right? The one yep. buck you got last year, but he mm-hmm. only had a 13 inch spread. Yep. Um, you know, that is going to be a rare case. Uh, you know, that's the bell shaped curve. That deer is going to be on the one end of the curve where on average deer in Texas probably don't have 13 inch spreads at that age. Um, it may be genetically in that area. There are deer that have, um, smaller or more narrow spreads but honestly the antler regulation isn't doing something to change that you can't you can't change the genes of a deer herd that's just what's there so maybe in that one little pocket the antler regulation is not matched perfectly but again a state doesn't manage at a property scale or even at a uh you know co-op scale they manage at a county scale or a WMU, which is wildlife management unit, which is sometimes several counties or state. So they can't worry about if they're trying to, to look at the preponderance of just the, the sheer data of how many bucks are killed in Texas. It's insane. They can't worry about small little pockets. They have to do it at a much larger scale, which is where we come in. QEMA comes in and says, hey, uh, you manage at the property scale work at that scale, manage your own property, take deer steward, learn about how to manage your own property or form a co-op. And honestly, that's what impacts you anyway. So if you formed a co-op with the properties around you and you knew that there was an antler regulation in place and that one buck was too narrow for what the law would allow if it was that one deer and it was uh, really not, uh, that deer wasn't, what wasn't going to be eligible for harvest and he was already mature. I'm hoping he was a rare case. If it was the majority of deer in that, in that area, um, you could start making decisions based on how to improve that by talking to your state and just say, listen, the antler regulation in this area is not, and show them the data and say, it's not conducive to the deer that are in this area. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's some, that's uh that's definitely I think you're right uh, as you're saying this is on very on one sided on the the outward bounds of the uh, of the bell curve. I think that was a a um, abnormality and kind of when I walked up to the deer I was like uh, wow he he is kind of narrow and but I mean 13, 13 inches is decently wide when you think about it in terms of your hand but from beam to beam I was like man this this deer would barely be legal in Texas and you know it's yeah. a it's a trophy. So I just thought that was really interesting. I mean, that's an awesome deer. I mean, I like, you know, again, the bell shaped curve, most deer want to be eight points, which is why everybody loves 10, 11, 12 pointers. You know, the, the majority of bucks are going to be eight points because that's what they're, they're built to be. And most are going to be, you know, probably like 16 to 18 inches wide at maturity. So the deer that get really wide, like 22, 23 inches, those are always eye openers or the ones that are really narrow or, you know, like those are those rare deer, um, mass, obviously most deer are going to have an average mass. Um, it's the ones that are a little bit different. That's why I love deer and I love deer hunting is I think antlers express some of those differences, um, a lot more frequently than pursuing other game, like, you know, pronghorn or turkeys, you know, you get, you know spur lengths that are a little bit longer you get uh pronghorn antlers that are uh, or horns that are might be they, they go wider but gender generally there's a lot more uh similarity between individuals and other species uh but for deer they just they they do things with their antlers that are just more frequently different it makes them so cool i think that deer's awesome 
a yeah, no. deer that yeah, that's mature. Yeah, it was it was an awesome deer to take. Uh, but man, I I still didn't get through what I wanted to what I all I wanted to cover on this episode, um, which sucks. But maybe we'll just have to do another one at some point. But uh, I gotta I gotta run. I gotta get to work here. It's already nine here. Gotta be in by nine thirty. So, uh, but man, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. It's always always a good um, educational conversation for me, and I I really think the listeners are enjoying it. Thanks, Christian. I, I appreciate it. You better get to work. And uh, one last plug for anybody that's listening: if you're not a QDMA member, please join. We could we could use your support for sure. It's only thirty five dollars a year, and you get a lot of great information uh, through that membership. I think it's kind of a no brainer, kind of like Matt explained, to be a QDMA member for the next year for thirty five dollars. Um, it's a super crazy deal. They're going to give you a ton of educational material, email newsletters. Not sure if they do the magazine anymore. They post an annual right whitetail report. Um, it's custom by each state. You can look at the data there. I mean, consider taking a data-driven approach to management this next year. Recording everything that you see, recording the size of each deer that you see, and talking to your local biologist um, about that and about your area. But QDMA is an awesome organization. Check them out at QDMA.com. And let me know if you guys are enjoying the episodes of the QDMA because there's a lot more members I could bring on to chat with on the podcast. Let me know, guys. Thanks. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.